I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest on the show is, I think, one of the world's best working film critics uh, and uh, a staggeringly talented uh, and and just really insightful writer. And I'm so, so uh, grateful that we've been able to link up again to talk about a Michael Mann movie in much more unexpected circumstances than last time. It's my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Walter Chaw. Walter, welcome to Mohicans with me, my friend. It's such an honor to be here. I can never, uh, never live up to your your introductions, but but I'm really grateful that you thought of me for this project. Well, we we had a brief dalliance. I was so lucky that you shouted me out on Twitter. You and your daughter, you were introducing your daughter to Mohicans, and and one of the tweets that you said, uh, Walter, I'll have to say, uh, partially inspired how this project came to me was that of all the movies. Of all the of of all movies, you know, some endings are just the the endings that 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 elevate the entire film. The, the endings that just they're, they're unbeatable. And Michael Mann's nineteen ninety two film, The Last of the Mohicans, the ending scored to the Gale, um, arranged by Trevor Jones, is is just that, that this gives the show its title. That last twelve minutes is some of the most profound. And and deeply cinematic and dialogueless, just pure. Anyone can watch that last twelve minutes and understand the drama. It's it's just unbelievable. So uh, I thank you for shouting me out and uh, and helping along with this uh, this crazy thing. Yeah, I, it is perfect, isn't it? I mean, it's a yes. uh, you know whenever I use the term perfect for a film, usually it means that the film is perfect but boring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. I, I, yeah. There's so many movies that I really love that are perfect, and they're so perfect. It's like uh, Catch Me If You Can, the Spielberg film. It's perfect, but it's also kind of boring. But you know, the, <laughs> the, the thing about uh, Mohicans that I love is that it, 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 it's it, it's sloppy and it's these big emotions. It's a melodrama writ large across you know this impossible imaginary almost landscape. And but the last twelve minutes, you know, in terms of editing, in terms of the amazing cinematography by the legendary Dante Spinelli. It, it is, and the Gale. Yeah. You know, Tre- Trevor Jones's version of it anyway, is it, just, uh, it, it, it never fails to stir me. It never fails to make me cry. Um, it, it is, uh, sort of this, the pure distillation of 
uh, of love, uh, you know, from a male perspective, you know, tragedy of love and, and the intense emotions of love, uh, the, 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 the dramas that we, I think, tell ourselves as men as we grow up about, you know, saving the woman and, you know, the noble sacrifice and the, and the friends that you lose along the way, um, the, 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 the fathers that, that you either are born with or, 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 or choose you. You know, the, the, the ideas of, 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 you know, how we tell our story as we go through our lives are all encapsulated in the most romantic and sweeping and gorgeous way uh, in, in all of the film, really. But to your point, you know, the last 12 minutes of it are just, you know, from the moment they, they leave the, the uh, camp and, and the, you know, the Huron War Party walks, out, walks away with, with, with Alice. Um, it, it's, it's from there till the end, you know, no matter which version you see, is, it's, it's, it never fails to, uh, to, to move me. And I think uh, it's, it, it, I'm hard-pressed to think of many other films that I can say that about. Yeah, I've just I've seen it a million times, and I think as you have seen it a million times, and just in preparation for our chat today, I watched it a few times, and I'm, you're exactly right. It's you. Um, it's difficult to even explain the the maneuvers of each each swelling minute as it progresses and the ebbs and flows of the gale without sort of getting a bit bunched up because it's telling you know the, it's telling these the tale of these three tragedies from Margua leaving the camp. You've got Stephen Waddington getting his heroic moment, his self-sacrificial moment as Major Duncan Haywood, you know, swapping himself at the last moment for Madeline Stowe's Cora. Alice Munro is heading off with Margua and team and Uncas. Oh, Eric Schweig. He's just divine. Just charging up that mountain. And you want to believe that he's unstoppable. And in that moment, you kind of don't, really i'm trying to cast my mind back to when i wasn't super familiar with this movie but you don't really know what he's going to do like you don't really know how successful he's going to be it feels like there's already an air of tragedy about it because we've seen how ruthless magua already is where's studies magua but charging that war party you want to believe as he's sort of like bounding up that mountain like a like a lynx or a panther that he can, he, he's going to be able to carve his way through Margua's men and rescue Alice and save her. And, and in, in the opening moments, I think to, to Michael Mann, to Dante Spinotti's credit, um, to, to, you know, to Eric Schwieg is that you, you believe it. And, and then he hits the unstoppable force and it's uh, every exchange is so sublime. Well, and, and I think in those 12 minutes, all of these characters are sort of transmogrified into emotion. Yes. Into emotional bits, right? And, and so, you know, I love that you say unstoppable force because he really does become a force. And, and it's like, you know, I, 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 I think it's a phrase that you coined earlier before we, we came on where, you, you know, it, it's, it's Magua's tragedy. It is his, um, the force of his, 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 um, his, his vengeance, his, his feeling of, of, of wanting to kill the white man, you know, white, white hair seed, um, in the film, you know, there, 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 that scene in the film where he lays out his manifesto, he says, I was taken, I was enslaved while I was gone. My wife married another man. And this, and, and my, 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 my daughter, my 15 year old daughter look, turns over to me at that point and She says, Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, right. Yeah, this moment, each of these characters become, sort of a, an emotional archetype they, rather than just pure character. They become 
a thing, unstoppable things that are moving through the world. And I think that's that, that temporariness really lends to the romantic impact of the last 12 minutes as well. It's like throughout this movie, um, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis and Russell Means and Eric Schweiger are this force that moves through. They yes. don't stop, you know, well, not for very long anyway. When they do, not good things happen, right? But they, <laughs> they're, they're always in motion. They're the ones that, that move through. The battles happen around them, and they just pick off the, enough people for them to get away. They're yes. moving through. They're passing through. So for the very last scene of this film, for them to be standing in a moment at the edge of a cliff, and you know, in some versions of it, there's this really great extended um, um, uh, speech by the Russell Means character where he says, you know, our time is passing soon, men like you. Even you, my white son, you know, there won't be a place in this world for you anymore. And we feel that really deeply. I do anyway when I watch this movie yes. about the sense that these people are moving through and they're they're temporary and they're forces and they're grand, amazing forces. But like, you know, rivers run dry eventually. And, and you know, this idea of uh, um, things passing and things ending. And, and you know, to, to me, that's always been such a romantic notion. That's my you know, my favorite part about an end of the Western Westerns or Cormac McCarthy novels is this idea of taking place at the end of a certain period where certain things were valued over other things and certain men existed, you know, and, 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 and there, there's a Welsh term that I can't pronounce. I think it's ye, ye wraith, which talks about this idea where you have this amazing nostalgia and melancholy for a place where you've never been before. Yes. Or a time that you've never been. Or couldn't be, and can certainly never return. And so, you know, the, the, I think man here, it really rather unexpectedly, right? Because he's sort of the crime guy, and he did Manhunter before this, and a yes. TV movie, and and you know, and so it's like sort of unexpectedly does this sweeping, gorgeous um, tale of, of of you know of the male epic, really, to say this is what heroism for men looks like, and this is what nobility and courage for a woman looks like when she says. Duncan, I used to like you. I can't remember why. You know, and then, then there's, there's all of these things that are right. It's bravery and cordiality at its best. Uh, Is, yeah. Isn't that the most stunning, <laughs> stunning thing? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And and you know, whenever I watch it, I feel like where's Madeline Stowe? Where oh my are all god! Great. 90s actress where did they go what, you know the julia ormonds too you know where yeah. are they the the uh, mary elizabeth Antonios. yes um, like, you know the great 90s strong women a- actors who you know really for me as i was growing up and going through college and everything to find a certain kind of woman <laughs> yes. for, for, for me um you know and and, and you know and La- La- last of the mohicans is like I-, I i love the reason he stays behind to maybe get get, get hanged is because he saw a girl <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. that's, you know, that was something me and my college buddies could look at each other and, and, and with all noble intentions say, I want to find her. I want to find the one and I would do anything for her and, uh, you know, just stay alive. I'll find you, you know, all of those emotions that are expressed in this movie are so immediately familiar to, 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 I think, you know, the romantic part of a man's brain um, for I, what it's worth. Yeah. It's, you, we talk. You talked a little bit about Wes Studi here and and being a force of nature and and these different characters being forces and the choices that are made, especially you know when you reflect on them, is you know the the beginning of this podcast really focuses on the end and it's exiting the Huron camp and and you know Marg was 
a force of progress at that final moment. He's contending with the writing that he already sees on the wall. And, you know, that, that we talk about the effectiveness of tales that, in essence, are the last of. And I, I loved how you talked about, the, you know, the last Westerns. You know, the Westerns, when the, when the frontier's done, when, when progress is here. Um, and he sees the profound tragedy of that progress is coming for his people and the, and the native peoples of America. And, and so even in that final curse before they leave the camp, before we get to the, you know, the focal point of what, what this podcast miniseries is, I still love, there's this disdain in Magua's voice when he's cursing out the Huron chief, the Huron Sashem. And he's saying, he's cursing him out in French. Like, he doesn't even have the courtesy to curse him out in Huron native language. He's cursing him out in French. So, uh, more than anything, that progress is here. But in this moment, Uncas hits Magua. And there's been a ruthlessness and a bloodletting for the white man in the film with, that Magua has in battle. That, that he, he is present everywhere else except this moment. And so, I think it goes to the force this transcendence into this force figure is that he sees Uncas attacking him and it's just stop, stop, stop. And he's doing things. He's behaving in the way that his body almost in this like reflexive manner knows how to kill. Like he's been made to be the guy who's ruthlessly killed many people and led this band, this ruthless war party through, through all of the chaos. But one thing that really, really cripples me watching these final 12 minutes is, just his deep, deep dissatisfaction with what he has to do. It's amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? I, I, I you know, we could go long and deep, probably do another uh 200 hour podcast. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, West duty's decisions in this film. Um, they're, they're so unexpected, you know, for, for a villain character, especially there, you know, I, I even hesitate to call him a villain. He's not in I, my mind, in He's my mind too. Not a right, villain. Just, tragic tortured figure and you know such a wonderful metaphor for 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 the native american experience perhaps uh and you know even more universal than that you know and it's like i feel like um when he doesn't make a sound when he's almost tender with the eric schweig character at the end you know he's he's kind of holding him in a way yes. and you know gently and some would say sadistically but it didn't feel that way to me it felt like he's dispatching him and the, you know, the sense of dissatisfaction that you say, but also what, what an amazing choice for an actor not to become savage in that moment. Yes. Not, not not to ever, you know, descend into a different portrayal than, than he'd had before. Um, you know, at the end when he's, when he's dying, when he's been crippled and both of his arms have been crippled, there's no attempt to barter. There's no attempt to dodge. There, 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 there's a brief sort of huff, I think when his shoulder is crushed, but beyond that, no, you know, cries and none from Russell means either. It's just this very inevitable <laughs> yes. feeling. It's like two, two mountains coming together, yes. you know, and there's an earthquake sort of idea, this tectonic movement. And, you know, man, for this guy who is the master, right, of the sort of violence of the sort of men coming together, violence to have the, this in his repertoire is unbelievably strange and beautiful. Yes. You know, it, it speaks, um, you know, to something that I can't really articulate well, you know, yes. but, but it, it feels correct. It feels like, well, of course, this is the way that these men would fight. And, and 
throughout, you know, in the back of my mind, it's sort of like watching those uh, animated dinosaur movies for me. It's like, no matter what happens, you guys are gone. <laughs> yes. <You know? laughs> I don't know if baby dinosaurs finding mama dinosaur, but you guys are all extinct in a few years. So I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but yeah, I kind of feel like that about this film as well, where I feel like everybody is gone. Everybody is dead. The story is, you know, everything is Pyrrhic in yes. this film, you know, you know, except for the British who are the most clueless, ridiculous things in the, in the, in, in, you know, they're, they're them standing on a line and taking a shot and then getting decimated as they're trying to reload. They're ridiculous figures in this movie. They're constantly in need of rescue. Yeah. And they're the ones that win. We're, we're the ones that got to live here. <laughs> it, 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 it's such a dark, you know, realization that we, we, we are the most pathetic things in this film. And, you know, all the, no, all the nobility, this idea of nobility and honor has passed. And, you know, I, I think it's a theme that re, 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 revisits in man's films and over and over and over again, you know, you know all the way through Public Enemies and beyond, where, where it's like the sense of honor has gone. The, 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 the sense of doing the right thing and, and, the, and the Magwas, you know, of the world, not to mention, you know, the, the Daniel Day-Lewis's and the you know, Red Russell means the Magwas of the world no longer exist. Yes. And, you know, and for me, I think it's telling, too, that even though I love adore West Duty, you know, revere West Duty, especially his work here and his work in Geronimo, that whenever I refer to him in this movie, I always talk about him as Magua. Yes. It is such a, that is just the character. I, that's it. That's it. I, I don't think of Hawkeye or Korra or Chugachkuk. You know, I, I don't think of those as characters to me. They're, they're better remembered for me as the actors who did a great job. Um, but West Duty, he's just Magua. He's Magua. Yeah. Yeah, and just the choices you know he makes in this movie are stunning. You know, they almost bring a, a tear to my eye. I'm not an actor. I'm not trying to make it, <laughs> but, but, but I appreciate the craft of it so much. Yes, and I feel like oh my gosh, you know this guy is next level doing something. He's inside this character in a way that's you know that I, I I can't understand. Yeah, there's a cream that rises to the top in a lot of man films. I think he's got this alchemy of casting. Bonnie Timmerman is his casting partner. He's been there mm. along, along the way. And Timmerman definitely has an innate thing where Michael's got an idea for a look and she's got an idea for this like immersion, like who can, who can do this. Um, and, and I think when you look at someone like Madeline Stowe and you've got someone like Daniel Day-Lewis, which is sort of an under underplayed topic of conversation a lot, you know, that one of the greatest method actors you know, post the 1970s generation, or if not the only one that still remains doing this really, you know, really obsessively detailed immersion process, hooked up with Michael Mann in 1992, does this movie, goes out, like literally trains to be an outdoorsman. In Michael Mann's words, you know, Hawkeye is the great American hero before the great American hero, like the frontiersman. And you get Madeline Stowe who just stands up. You've got Russell Means who as an activist is one of the greatest badasses in the history in modern history. Um, but then also, you know, transforms his body to become a guy who's bounding up mountains alongside Eric Schwieg and, and, and Daniel Day Lewis. And, and then Wes Studi, you know, I think, you know, it's very clear that this guy is a, a, a profoundly terrific actor, but here as well, he just, I don't know, there's something about the stage being set and we talked about it the two mountains coming together with russell means i imagine reading that script and knowing that you know you're going to go toe-to-toe with this guy and you're going to have to do it wordlessly and it's going to have to you know there's going to be a tragedy but then there's going to be an acceptance and all those things and in this moment i think that's so huge um one particular moment i want to call out is you talked about tenderness before 
there's just something, you know, I think you know, since memeable and gifable uh, uh, moments have come to cinema and the way that we communicate on film Twitter or whatever, that that Magua gesture of like, come to me with his hand that he does to Alice, Jodie May has been shared many times. And I just want to call out because it doesn't really get captured in the gif a lot, but it's like his hands are covered with blood. Yes. And there's a great irony of that moment. And obviously it's, you know, profoundly being told it's being told in that beautiful, you know, almost Antonioni metaphorical slash physical, literal thing happening. And man does that in a lot of his work, but it's like, he's there, there's tenderness, but there's a warning (laughs) that there is literally and figuratively blood on this guy's hands. And he's still clutching a knife to stab you potentially, if he doesn't like what your reaction is. And she's put in that, you know, literally a mountainous rock in a hard place to make a decision for self-sacrifice rather than slavery. And it's just unbelievably profound. And every time I watch it now and every time I see that gif, I'm like, the gif isn't really cropped well enough to show people that there is (laughs) dripping, gleaming red blood on Wes Studi's hands, Margot's hands. Right, and and it's it's blood of her, you know, sort of implied lover, right? Yes. Blood, blood of the of the man that she loves, and and I think it in in a very succinct, to your point, lovely metaphoric way, almost it it sort of describes the choice that women had during this period. Yes, is that you get married well, or you become a whore, yes. or, a, or or a victim of some other sort, you, you know, a, a rape victim or a murder victim, you know, it's sort of like the whole McCabe and Mrs. Miller encapsulated in one gesture. It's yes. like these are your choices. You know, you you you've got the abyss behind you, <laughs> or you've got the sort of future with this man with literal and figurative to your you know lovely mm-hmm. point, blood on his hands. You know, and and the, the the blood of perhaps your possible your other possible future on your hands. The reason that you're dead, you know, to sort of like the dead wood with the, the that one character. You're here because your husband's made a terrible mistake, and now he's dead. Yes. So so you you know the 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 the, the product of your peril is the only product of your salvation in which do you choose? And it's like, it's a really remarkable moment because he here, even he gives Alice, who's not really had any kind of agency throughout the course of the film. She's, she's almost simple in a way, you know, she kind of looks around and confused for most of the movie, but here she's given a moment to make a decision and she makes a decision and it's remarkable. It's lovely and completely unexpected. I think a lesser film, a lesser director, you know, everybody gets reunited and the five of them stand on a cliff and, you know, happy dad, <laughs> two, two married couples. Um, yeah, and he but, rubs their, tussles their hair. Ah, the boys. Yeah. <laughs> but, but none of that. And there's even, I think for me, the suggestion that that Russell Means doesn't win the fight if the son isn't sacrificed first, that all of these things happen in, in, in the end with the, sort of this inexorable meaning. Like everything has to happen in this sequence for this to happen. Yes. You know, right after, you know, um, um, uh, Duncan makes his sacrifice, there's this amazing scene where he cuts away to show uh, uh, R- R- Russell Means and, and, and Schweig and Uncas, you know, uh, uh, up on the hill watching, you know, all of it. And 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 he, he, he looks, Uncas does, over at his father and touches him and squeezes him on the shoulder and looks at him. And they look at each other. And then um, he runs off to get ahead of the war party so much right of that of this 12 minutes that we're talking about but the rest of the film too are these unspoken moments between fathers and sons between men between whatever where we come to an understanding of one another to stop and turn around and to shoot duncan in the head all of these unspoken 
moments uh, of, of chivalry and, and friendship and, you know, masculine friendship, which we can't talk about, you know, mm-hmm. really in, in any public sphere. I think Australia is actually more macho than, than America. We can't talk about that. And so there's, there, there, there's, you know, for, for us, for, for, for men who have been ruined by the patriarchy, uh, what, 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 watching the last Mohicans is an extraordinarily emotional experience because yes. for me, that's how I communicated with my dad before he died. You know, we, we talked about sports. We never talked about how much we loved each other. We couldn't. Yes. And, and the, 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 it was just, you know, it doesn't happen like it does in the movies where on the deathbed or, you know, after the heart attack, you have this, oh, let me just tell you all the feelings I've been holding back. You know, it doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just go and then you spend your life regretting that. But here in Mohicans, is this beautiful sort of like, this is how we talk to each other. This is what we understand. The father understands that the son is going away and going after maybe the love of his life and in doing so, maybe leaving the house going, you know, it's almost like an Ozu pillow moment here. It, uh, it's, it's five second Ozu. Yeah. Like it, it's, it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's what happens in a whole Ozu picture and more. <laughs> it, it just is squashed into this gesture. Because it, yeah. because the the great thing I love about what you're talking about is the the tenderness of Uncas's touch, and yeah. uh, Chingachgook's Russell Means turns around and looks, and his eyes are up, and so then Chingachgook yeah. looks where he looks, and then they look back at each other, and there's just this this little d- dance around a triangle of understanding. So there's the geography of what we're understanding is the audience is there too, but you're right, it's like he doesn't need to say anything, he doesn't need yeah. to say anything. He's got he's he's t- he's embracing him. In the way that they're, they're that they're appropriate, and he understands they've had to communicate so seamlessly and wordlessly in their whole life. Yeah, and that's the it, tragedy. It, that's the tragedy on rewatch is because you aren't you. <laughs> the gravity of right. that moment just kills you every single time. Right. Well, and you, you 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 sort of realize right that this is their farewell, one way or another. Yes, one way or another, this is their farewell. You know, this is either him. Losing his son to a different civilization, or losing his son to a diff- to a different reality, yeah. you know, just as he's going to lose Hawkeye, right? I mean, something's going to happen. Something's changing here about the landscape that only he knows. And I think he speaks to it a little bit in his eulogy, where he says, "Everything is changing. I'm the last." And I don't think he means literal last. You know, I think he just means, you know, he's representative of a certain way of life that's going away, and and, and he understands that everything is changing. And and there's that one five second moment to your point where he communicates all of it to his son and you know it's it, it's heart, heartbreaking and, and so loaded and so beautiful really and and it's uh you know it it, it it's art yeah <laughs> like it is it, it's, just, it's it is art and the choices you know russell means we talked about jody may barely saying a word you know russell means as jigachuk says as fewer words almost as she does in the entire movie and and the choice especially when after that beautiful exchange the poetry of him sort of cresting through that gap in the mountain range and you know ducking under that little rock formation and looking up and seeing in the distance magua and uncas on the edge of the cliff and man you know makes a a really beautiful peckinpah-esque choice which is he goes into slow motion and he just kills the sound and so you have to watch Russell Means as Chingachgook scream, you know, scream in agony, but a silent agony. And I think it's, it's to your point, it's like, that's the regret because the scream, yeah. Uncas is never going to hear it. And we, and, and, and we like Uncas are never going to hear that scream. We're just going to know yeah. that it, it would, he would, he's going to ache for the rest of his days 
at losing Uncas in that moment. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, and and the lack of dr- dramatics otherwise, you know, tr- trusting the audience to know the gravity of that situation, not having you know this unfortunate like stuntman moment or like a yeah. you know a, a bad mannequin moment or whatever, you know, just having him slide yeah. down the side of the rock face is haunting as oh. hell. You know, it was like you know the, the the sort of like just out of reach idea, like if I could just. A minute, an extra minute, or, or if I could just have a moment where I could reach out, I could still get him. You know, he's right there. He's right there. And, and, and yeah, and that that feeling of, of 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 the nearness of this history to me is something else that's really compelling about and, and endlessly young about this film is that we are always at this place. We're always at this moment of emotional crisis. It seems like in our country, and, and it's like in our countries, and it's you know all all of yeah. these these demons that we have to deal with. Um, in our culture still and it all boils down to these ideas of these essential conflicts and they are just about the the conflicts that men have and the conflicts that women have and the conflicts that cultures have and they're always unresolvable um and you know there are always these these mountains meeting each other and there's always these sort of tumultuous quakes and there's never you know but 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 the solution's always right there though right it's always yeah. right right and there it's, and, like, it's stra- and it's right. just strangling like it's 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 strangling you and it's suffocating because it's like is it progress is this progress is this right. sophistication is this progress and it's it's that it's that's, that's what tears at you but i think yeah, one well, thing that is great about this film particularly is that it tangles with those subjects and it doesn't it's not prescriptive it just tangles with them and i think that yeah. tangle is why we can we watch it and be effortlessly engaged by it again and again because it's it, it paints a huge canvas for our you know with you know, paints on a huge you know big broad brushstrokes of an emotional canvas for us to, to chart and to really dive into but it doesn't it doesn't diminish it doesn't diminish any of the topics of the reality of the situation that it's in i think that's another that's another element outside of this perfect 12 minutes that i think informs it um i want to thank you walter because as part of our little twitter exchange the other day um you know people who who I've watched the 1992 Last of the Mohicans. You would see that you know there are there are numerous versions, cinematic versions of Mohicans that have existed throughout the past, and it's obviously based off a James Fenimore Cooper book. And you pointed me in the direction of uh, your one of you what you called a, one of one of the best pieces of literary literary criticism ever, a brutal takedown of James Fenimore Cooper by one Mark Twain. And it's just if I, I will link it in the description of this, it is absolutely stunning, um, where he literally uh, lists um, uh, lists in glorious detail every single defect. I think there's some odd eighteen, nineteen defects in just like one paragraph of Deerslayer by uh, James Fenimore Cooper, um, which is just unbelievable. So I would just strongly recommend it and thank you. Uh, 18 it is, sorry, not 19 um, in the Deerslayer tale. So if uh, if you guys uh, want to check that out, I would strongly recommend it because one thing that man acknowledges is that, uh, you know, he was, as a young man, he was completely taken by the original silent last of the mohicans and um but but as he does authenticity being an equalizer for michael mann uh absolutely did not take to this you know very arcane noble savage imagery related to native americans so it it becomes a a much more detailed and extremely rich uh telling and undertaking for michael mann and his uh, his his adaption yeah yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's 
well, you know, if people have not seen the 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 silent film from 1936, I think it was. It, it is really, really, really good. Really, really, really good, um, and and highly recommended as well. As, as, as is Mark Twain's takedown of the literary crimes of James Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> Is that thing? But yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on. I think, um, you know, it, it's films like this that really, I think you made the point earlier, make you love film yes. for the first time. Um, you know, when I saw this in the theater, you know, and and I was with it, and I wasn't with it. You know, I was a young dumb guy, and and but you know, when the sequence begins and the thing swells up, you know, I'm, I'm like furiously wiping away tears. I'm not really sure where they're coming from and what they're expired by. And I'm hoping no one sees me because I'm too much of a man to cry in a movie, but, <laughs> um, but just wrecked me. And, 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 you know, and, and I, I think if you see it at the right time or, you know, maybe every time is the right time, but for, for me in the last 20 or 30 years, how long has it been since the movies come out? Oh my God. But um, it has been sort of a process of reckoning of why movies feel a certain way. And, you know, I've never thought of last of the Mohicans as being that movie for me. I've always thought of the conversation as being that movie, but in many ways, Mohicans is sort of the emotional version of the conversation for me in which I don't know why I'm having this response. And I think there might be some value in discovering it. And that sort of turned me into a critic in a way, you know, movies like this, which have this amazing visceral archetypal, you know, um, impact on you uh, demand sort of this uh deep kind of analysis that you're doing with heat and now with mohicans where you know it deserves a second look a deeper look where you examine who you are through the lens of this film and why does you know the, there was that great ben stiller show skit where uh ben stiller plays De- uh hawkeye selling <laughs> I remember it. I remember it. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it into this show right now. Hi, I'm Daniel Day Lewis. And those of you who've seen Last of the Mohicans know that much of the plot consists of my character Hawkeye running from one place to another. Running up hills, running across fields, through rivers, running, running, and more running. How did I get into shape for all this running, you ask? The answer is this. The Mohican Master 2000. When I want a light warm-up, I set the Master to chase by bears. For more of a challenging workout, I move on to pursued by flesh-eating Huron tribesmen. And for full-on aerobic training, I press surrounded by drunken Yankee trainers with muskets. Wow. Work out like that'll sweat off your tribal tattoos. You know, the Mohicans may have been last in the race to survive, but they were number one when it came to cross-training. So come on, what are you waiting for? Get yourself a master. It helped put the ICANN back into this Mohican. The Mohican Master 2000. Get yours today. Warning! If something goes wrong on the treadmill, stay on! Do not get off! I will come, no matter what occurs! Where he uh, talks about, you know, but it, it's, it's it's essentially silly, right? These people, these men running through a movie, you know, running through 1757. Why does it have an emotional impact? Why does it land the way that it does? When there's so many other movies, you could argue they're sort of like it, you know, yes. and in some aspects. Why do these movies work the way that they do? And they deserve this look. And I think 
you know, you, you, you add so much value to the popular conversation when you force us to stop for a second and say, you know, let's, we can talk about the 600 movies that came out this year, but before we do, let's talk about this 12 minutes and less of the Mohicans, because I think in a lot of ways, understanding our reaction to this man film is a Rosetta stone for how we respond to uh, masculine entertainments of this type uh, forevermore. You know, this is how we understand who we are um, as, as an audience. That is why Walter Chaw is always on the short list of talking to me about any film. Walter, thank you so much for being a part of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. And uh, thank you so much for joining me and, 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 and being wrecked with me as we watch this together as fathers, as young men, and continue to travel with it. And, uh, and may, may the, the tragedy of Magua live on in this analysis. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. To Magua. To Magua. Wow. Walter Chaw, ladies and gentlemen, at Mangiotto on Twitter, M-A-N-G-I-O-T-T-O. Filmfreakcentral.net is a site that you need to favorite. Walter is the senior critic there, and he is literally one of the greatest film critics working today. Uh, essential reading every time, and I'm so glad to call him a friend and a collaborator on now two Michael Mann podcasts, but the hits don't stop there. Uh, I now have an extremely talented journalist, an Australian, and not a guest on One Hit Minute at all, but a fan of Michael Mann nonetheless, and a fan of Beefcake Daniel Day-Lewis, and one of the my most entertaining uh, Twitter followers, Mr. J.R. Hennessy. Let's join J.R. Insanely prolific writer and editor for Pedestrian TV. He is a media and political commentator all over the place, um, but he curates one of... The most hilarious uh, Twitter feeds that I've had the joy of following. It's, uh, he gives really fantastic Twitter. And uh, and before we even get started on talking anything about the Titanic ending of Michael Mann's 1992 period epic, Last of the Mohicans, I'll read you my next guest's great tweet about it. Doesn't matter if you're one of the best film actors in history. In 1992, you had to be a sweaty, long-haired warrior poet mugging for the camera. That was the rule. At J.R. Hennessy is where you can find his wonderful Twitter. And the man I'm talking to himself, J.R. Hennessy, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's great to finally meet you in this medium. Thank you so much for that uh, amazing intro. Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling incredibly amped up to talk about Michael Mann now after receiving such a great <laughs> run-up. Well, look, it's, it is a, like, a, like we were just talking about off-air this has just been. Uh, this is a whirlwind. This is. Uh, I, I, there is an inherent perversion in going from speaking 130 hours about something to only potentially speaking an, an hour or a couple of hours. Um, and you know, there were some great folk who uh, I'd already I'd seen talking about Michael Mann in the past. I'd occasionally spotted you talking about him on Twitter and going on a thread. Um, I can't remember what was the last one. I think maybe it was Collateral or something like that. I saw you and I was like, oh, it would have been really good to see if JR was ever available to chat. But there's no Michael Mann podcast that I'm working on this minute that demands <laughs> that I get him. But now here it is and here we are. So um, it's exciting to talk to you finally. Yeah. Um, I think it might have actually been um, the Miami Vice movie oh, I was tweeting about recently. There you go. There you go. Another That's classic. Another, another classic. Look, another one right for a podcast. But I said in the last one, JR, that I was never going back. I was never doing another Michael Mann podcast. 
And just like Neil McCauley, I lied to everyone. I lied, you lied I thought, to everyone. I thought I was gonna, I thought I was going to Fiji. I really thought I was taking Edie to Fiji, and I didn't. I didn't. I went to go kill Wayne Grow. This is me coming back. Uh, this is this is it. So Mohicans, nineteen ninety two. You know, you're uh, you you're revisiting it not as much as your other Michael Mann movies that you revisit pretty semi regularly. Is that is that kind of the the your rhythm with uh, Mister Mann? I know you're a movie guy. But yeah. uh, how how frequently do you um uh, do you revisit uh, Mr. Man's back catalogue? Well, I I revisit Heat quite a lot. I would say I like I have probably one or two viewings of Heat per year. I would say because um, that's a that's an an all time for me. Um, Last of Mohicans, as I said to you off this before, I uh, don't think I'd actually seen it in probably nearly a decade until yes. you messaged to say <laughs> that you were doing a podcast about it. Um, <laughs> But well, it's, it's one of those movies that you kind of forget was made by him. Um, like, it's one of those... It, it sort of has a Titanic presence um, sort of when you think about sort of the, the cinema of the 90s, right? When you think about, like, big American epics. Yes. Uh, Last of the Mohicans is sort of always in that conversation. Um, but it's very, very... It's so easy. early too, right? Like yeah, it's totally. so So early and it's... It's like Dances with Wolves, 90. Yep. Mohicans, 92, like... If anyone's talking about epics in the '90s, that's what they're talking about. They're the, yeah. like they're the top one, two on the list, and obviously, Dance of Wolves is another is another whole other entity in and of itself. Totally, um, but you, it's very easy to forget that it it's a Michael Mann movie because it's so unlike everything else that he's done. Yeah, um, it's kind of it's it's really hard. To, it 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 very much fits into that kind of like '90s, early 2000s, like the last kind of breath of that sort of um style of epic filmmaking right um and i'd kind of trace that almost up until i guess uh early 2000s when you're talking about stuff like you know uh lord of the rings yeah. and, um troy yep uh, master and commander you know those movies where it's like an epic and there's a lot of people involved in the production um it, it's like it's it seems like as much a logistical exercise at getting huge amounts of extras and people and sets all over the place. Yeah, build, um, build, building actual boats, building exactly. instruments for Paul Bettany to play. I mean, totally. <laughs> these are um, important decisions to make in those periods. But, but I think you just, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is once you hit Lord of the Rings, and you obviously, you know, the centerpiece battle in Lord of the Rings is in Two Towers, and is the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, and that Battle of Helm's Deep, although there's like a stack of extras, uh, you know, and, and physical people occupying, you know using practical makeup and occupying stuff, it's like you can kind of fool anything from that point. Once you've got Weta Studios and they're doing digital stuff, um, it's all just composites of things. It's not It's not literally going and carving a fort and a battleground and firing, you know, rubber-balled cannons at, at real wood in North Carolina in the steamy summer. Um, yep. You're not doing any of that kind of post-2001 once Fellowship really hits hits the ground running. Exactly, yeah. So, and what makes it so interesting is that, like, you would, Michael Mann is not someone that you would think about when you think about movies like that, mm. like the really old school Hollywood studio mode of just like massive productions. You think about Michael Mann, you think about small, gritty, intimate, uh, strongly written, sort of like, um, and quite introspective movies uh, set, you know, obviously coming from his sort of uh, crime epic background and things like that. But the, but there's nothing in those, although they obviously movies like Heat uh, and 
the ilk in his um, filmography uh, sort of deal with uh, are quite epic in scale. Um, they don't really feel the same as like a big historical epic. Um, yeah, it's mostly would, con- if- it's mostly contemporary, right? Like that's totally. there's half your battle. If you're setting yep. it in contemporary Los Angeles, doesn't matter how big a battle scene is, which essentially the centerpiece of Heat is a, a, a modern battle scene. Yep. You're not having to be as rigorous around to like. What would horses actually be there? What exactly would they be using? What are the formations? And you know that he's that guy that needs to know what exact formations, what exact guns, what exact equipment, all that sort of stuff is so in his modus operandi that you feel like it's it's he'd have to have immersed himself in that too. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, as I said, it's one of those ones that you kind of forget is a Michael Mann movie. Um, so. So I revisit a lot of his um, filmography, but this is not one that I generally do. So it was an interesting one to go back, having watched uh, a lot of man content um, over the past 10 years and be like, okay, here's one of the ones that's a little bit unusual. It's kind of like um, uh, my other kind of like weird Michael Mann uh, extravaganza is The Cape. Again, something so, totally unlike. So, so different. So different. And for weird people who are listening in Australia, if you're listening to this podcast, like it's available on Australian iTunes to purchase. Yeah. Like so you can I, you can acquire that very easily. In other countries, it's not available in certain iTunes because of the different political and studio machinations and weirdness. But you you know, right now for a couple of bucks, you can download The Keep, um, uh, which to what extent it actually is what Michael Mann wanted. I think he would rather have his name scrubbed off it, um, uh, basically. But, uh, yeah, really, you know, very interesting. interesting totally. Like it, again, it's like he um, doesn't really fit very neatly with the rest of his um, filmography, much like uh, Last of the Mohicans does. But, you know, a, a weird fantasy horror movie doesn't really fit in anyone's yeah. filmography, to be honest. <laughs> like, it's a really, really strange combination and obviously, as, as you just said, it doesn't really uh, entirely work. No. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's broadly quite incoherent at points, um, but uh, certainly very interesting. So I had like a similar... Um, uh, Last of Mohicans is a far better film, I would say. Oh, I think that's inarguable. <laughs> I think the but, keep is like on another level. Yeah. But uh, again, it's another one I'm just seeing and seeing like little bits that you might see in some of his other movies sort of come through, like bits of his sort of like trademark and his way of doing things um, just applied to uh, like the historical epic, which is just a, such an interesting um, and rich genre. Yeah. And so you're, you're watching this movie, you're tackling Beefcake, Daniel Day-Lewis, who yep. we've become so accustomed to now as like, only working every 10 years where, you know, just going back to tit for tat with like Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson, what's coming to him in historical beefcake mode? Like 1992, he's this very sensitive son of a poet, never done any outdoorsman stuff. This is pre the boxer, which is another really insanely physical performance by day Lewis. And if you're a day Lewis completist and you haven't seen it, you have to, it's one of the best boxing movies ever made. But he comes into this movie and Michael Mann's like, hey, I, you're, you know, you you quiet Irish guy, you, you're my greatest American frontier hero. And this is, I need you to, I need you to get swole. I need you to learn how to do hand-to-hand combat. I need you to throw a tomahawk around. I need you to fire, fire an old-timey gun and be able to reload it on the run with powder and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and here he is, this guy who, Daniel Plainview, who, uh, um, 
Oh my God, Reynolds Woodcock. I nearly forgotten his name, but um, I remembered his name from uh, the Phantom Thread because Christopher Nolan says his kids call him Reynolds Woodcock, um, which is another <laughs> lovely little tidbit um, of internet trivia. Um, but yeah, you know, now he's in the beefcake mode. And this is my yeah. first, this is, I mean, I, I don't know about you, we're similar ages. Like, this is the first time I ever saw a Daniel Day Lewis movie as a kid. Like, this was the, this was an insanely popular. Re- frequently televised movie even in Australia huge cable totally. hit huge hit like this was the big catapult Michael Mann movie into popular consciousness as a big filmmaker Warner Brothers New Regency like it was a hit hit yeah um, I guess like before this Dan Day I mean he was very much in the um, in the consciousness because he'd already won One of us, uh, yeah. the Academy Award for My Left Foot, Foot. Um, so he was obviously a known entity, um, and I guess this would have been this was certainly pre the era in which he became famously selective yes. of the films that he was he was going to perform in. Um, so I mean, I think if he was very if he was in the mode of only doing one role every five years, he probably wouldn't have picked uh, Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> I can't imagine because um, you know, like uh, I mean, this is this is going off track a little bit, but. Uh, I, I remember I read the novel of Last of the Mohicans in university. Oh, yeah. Because I, I was studying the Leatherstocking Tales by James Fenimore Cooper. Um, and there are four four or five, I can't remember exactly, but there are four or five Leatherstocking Tales, and I read them all, uh, and they're just awful. They're just terrible, <laughs> terrible books. Like, they're historically um, important, and they were like a really, really sort of formative moment for American literature. Um, and like creating an American voice in literature, but just objectively, they're not good books. And I think that's kind of fairly widely acknowledged, even in yes. sort of like the popular and academic world, that they're they're slogs. They're not enjoyable. Um, they're mostly <laughs> valuable as historical artifacts. So you know, it's not like playing um, Nathaniel Poe or Natty Bumpo, as he's called in the book, which is a, a less cinematic name. Um, <laughs> Natty Bumpo. It sounds like a, a frat boy or something. Um, Literally but, uh, a character from Superbad, I think his name is. Yeah, Nadi totally. <laughs> it's yeah. basically. Um, but uh, so it, it's an unusual. So you, you have to wonder what the thinking was for Daniel Day-Lewis to pick up a role like this. Having won an Academy Award, um, maybe there was the feeling that like this was just a natural transition to moving into being a blockbuster kind of guy. Yeah. Um, because he really, really runs with it in the movie. I don't think he has a lot to work with in terms of uh, screenplay or characterization. Like it's not um, like a, he's not Reynolds Woodcock in this movie. He doesn't have this no. deep, rich characterization. Um, he's, but, he's like that headline. Exactly what I said. It was like, he's a great American hero. You know, he's a frontiersman. Yeah. He's all about what he is. He's a big ro- you know, romantic sort of melodramatic brushstrokes. Like that's, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty fair. But I think it's, it's that weird thing, JR, that happens with, and you hear about it with like, in a lot of sports and you hear about it in like cultures of, you know, whether it's a teams and things like that, of there's these guys like Michael Mann who for whatever reason, like I've, I've sort of come to coin a phrase with him. It's like, he's a method director and he imposes this method on people who don't, they're not method actors that he traditionally works with. Like I think in some of his very, very best work, they are, you know, you get something like 
you know, for whatever anyone thinks of the holistic work of Ali, like it's Will Smith's best performance in his career. Like it's undoubted. Yep. It's undoubted. He spent 11 months fight training and voice training. And so by the time they shoot the movie, he is the guy. Like he's, he's sure. been living the life. And, and so I think that these guys are attracted to him. It's just so early though. Like in that trajectory, we see it later with Heat. We see it with the Insider. You know, Russell Crowe, you know, bulks up. You know, we talk about beefcake here, but Rust, Rusty gets real super beefcake um, in the Cartman a uh, uh, turn of the phrase, so to speak, um, uh, to play uh, Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider. And then he backs up The Insider with Ali and then backs that up with Collateral. And so you've got like almost the biggest actors in the whole world in all of their genres, all ticking the boxes with Michael Mann at some point in their career, um, or at least trying to get, kind of get to get with that guy. So I just think it's funny. It's like, these two guys met up and at the time, you know, if you, some of the research that I've done just for this project is like Daniel Day-Lewis going, read the script, was really intrigued and just Michael just had me like, and so me talking to Michael about the project and what he envisaged for it was like it, but yeah, it's so weird. It is, it is a weird thing because Paul Thomas Anderson now, the lore of Paul Thomas Anderson, if you do, there will be blood, which is like probably the best performance in an American film in this century. Yep. Of course, when he calls again and goes, I have something for you you're going to pick the phone up and at least entertain what the conversation might be about. Totally. Um, but yeah, I, I just, he, he is in the typical, um, it's, it's a role, it's, it's a role that, uh, Day Lewis has never really attempted to replicate. Yeah. Like he's never been in anything that would be considered sort of a, um, uh, blockbustery kind of lead. No. Um, and I think you, in this, you can sort of tell that he's not really, in any way comfortable being that kind of person. <laughs> yeah. Um, like he can't really do the powerful uh, blue steel inhabiting sort of like an, <laughs> an action role. And like, even when he's sort of charging up a grassy embankment, as he does quite a lot in this film, this, this film is very heavy in terms of Jane Leila was sort of running up grassy embankments. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's just, it's not like a physicality that he's, he's, um, uh, he he naturally inhabits. He's had to work at it, man. He's had to. He's, yeah, he's really had to, he's, he's, to work at that. Yeah, agree. I agree. Absolutely. Um, but but when he's in the moments where he's sort of talking dramatically, and like you can tell that even for a role like this, he's really poured himself into nailing like that weird colonial American accent and things like that, which probably isn't insanely important to get to inhabit this character. But he's obviously put an incredible amount of effort into like getting this weird idiosyncratic. Um, quasi-American, quasi-American um, Indian sort of accent. Yeah, and it's only later that people, you know, I think it's like the the ad, the advent of the internet, right? Is that like, if if this was a modern movie that Daniel Day-Lewis was in, like, you know, even if it's a throwback, like, everyone would be talking about every question at every junket would be the preparation. And we'd find yep. out that Michael Mann had had him listening to, like, some weird, like, a historical tape at you know at, at some kind of conservation society of what people spoke like at the time to do this composite mm. accent and work with a vocal coach as well as doing all this stuff and it's only kind of years later that you're like oh no like this happened and there are weirdos that would prescribe to this craziness right of of this is how much we want you to inhabit for this this kind of role and how much dedication but i suppose maybe that's the hook Maybe that's the hook for someone like Mr. Day Lewis in that it's like if you, if you don't want me to immerse myself run through the woods learn an accent, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I can, I'm only going to do this sort of like big 
MTV epic <laughs> if I can like absolutely inhabit it and live, yeah. you know, this character. I think uh, um, Madeline Stowe, who is just a wonderful actor and is great in this movie. Yeah. Um, there's a funny sort of behind the scenes thing uh, uh, on on the director's definitive edition and and what we'll see in the upcoming release Australian ultimate cut of Mohicans in the special features, where she talks about Michael Mann. She's like Michael Mann's a general and Daniel Day Lewis was like a soldier. Like they were just like the number one and two. And so it's like the, these two guys together, um, you know the the intensity of the production uh, uh, must have been staggering for people like palpable um, for the intensity of the entire thing. So you've watched a lot of man movies. You're a movie guy. Yeah. Um, we're we're talking. We're, we're landing our focus in in this limited series on the ending because I think mm. that for all of the you know while this is absolutely a powerhouse epic and we talked about how it kind of turned up and it's in this real '90s epic mode kind of Hollywood throwback. It it ends in this movie with what I've sort of come uh, become accustomed to talking about is like, just like a silent, almost like silent film. So from the Huron council where Duncan makes his sacrifice, um, for Cora, um, and, uh, and so her and Hawkeye can be together. And Uncas sort of stares at Chingachagook and starts chasing after Alice up the mountain from kind of that moment. It just retreats into this insanely beautiful, like symphony of not only music, but, moving images, every trick under the book, like the kitchen sink is thrown at this. Like, is that, is that something that for you stands up as like a, you know, not only just in Michael Mann movies, but is that a great ending for you? Because I don't think that everyone's going to have that same opinion. But for me, I think it's like an all timer, like this ending of this movie and the balls that it has to sort of completely turn into this mode is, is pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's such an interesting shift in as as you say like the mode of the movie right yes um because you would expect because like a lot of this movie is like this almost swashbuckling sort of romance yes there's like the action scenes are very much like an action scenes of like a sort of a, a, a holdover from the 80s right yes like it's lots of very like physical like striking with a blade and like looking down the barrel of a musket as it shoots and the slow motion fire of the, um, of the, of the musket. Um, and then you get to this point at the end and it kind of really slows down and becomes like this really unusual impressionistic sort of, um, m- mode. Like, as you say, like dialogue becomes far less important. Um, it becomes sort of like this celebration of like light and motion and also something which, I guess throws back to what James Fenimore Cooper was doing with the books, which was kind of like this weird 18th century romanticism where everything sort of gets subjugated by the landscape. Yes. Um, obviously, a lot of this is sort of celebrating well what is supposed to be uh, the New York state landscape, but is actually North Carolina or yeah. South Carolina. Yes. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, it's not um, North Carolina woods, yep. Yeah, but, you know, I guess it's relatively similar. But it's like this... Um, you know, we've got this enormous clifftop battle um, as where the shots are celebrating sort of like this sweeping American frontier as much as it is the actual characters involved in it. Yes. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's when you mention the music, it's it's kind of interesting that this this film kind of has as its centerpiece that one 
musical theme. Yes. Like that that one sort of like uh, vaguely Celtic. Sort yeah, it's of, it's, uh, it's a, a contemporary piece called the Gale. Um, yep. For if folks are listening to this since your first episode, um, and Michael Mann's wife recommended it to him, and Michael Mann listened to it around the time of doing the film and said, "This is it," and sort of handed it over to the composer Trevor Jones and said, "Here you go, my friend. This is the movie. <laughs> you know, ha- have at it. Have at it in every conceivable arrangement that you can conjure. <laughs> but yep. this is the move. This is the movie. And yeah, you're so right. It's just literally. It's the the." Th- theme literally and figuratively of the whole movie is this rolling surging soaring beast of a song yeah this one thing and it's like as you say he kind of he pulls it apart and re- and stitches together in all different kinds of ways and the rest of the score is kind of just like interludes between that theme popping up again to sort of signify yes you know, emotional heights action scenes anything really um but again as we come to like this final scene it's the same thing it's almost like this weird um rhythm as it all kind of just like plays again and again and again over the top of this these like increasingly sort of sweeping visuals yes. uh, leading up to you know the final sort of um, brief monologue um yeah i think it's it it's the end of the film doesn't lead you where you would expect because you sort of expect it's just going to be another sort of large set piece or it's going to be sort of like a neat little tie up of uh the romantic subplot um, or I suppose you say, actually, it's kind of the A-plot, really. Um, <laughs> it is, but, it, but but you're right. You talked about subjugation of the landscape. It's like the, the the characters in this moment are being subjugated to the landscape, but the big swashbuckling romance, the centerpiece, the, you know, Magua, if you consider Magua the typical black hat bad guy in a big Western period drama, and, and Nathaniel Poe, a.k.a. Hawkeye, not Natty Bumpo, but a.k.a. Hawkeye um, with Daniel Day-Lewis is the big hero. You're expecting the hero moment. You want the, the hero needs to kill the villain. That's, that's you know, that's A plus B equals C sort of of American narrative cinema, like especially what they're throwing up in this. And what they do is they just bait and switch you in in the most profound way. And so when yeah. you even... and and what you f- find is when Jingachikuk's going for Magua, you're not thinking, oh, I hope Nathaniel, I hope Hawkeye takes over. I really want him to get in front of Jingachikuk here. You're yeah. like, no. Russell means that Jingachikuk needs to face off with this guy. Like, shit's going to get real. And that, you, you, you've just been completely on the hook for this thing. You don't even realize it. Yeah. And it's also the, the fact that, um, you know, I, I can't really inhabit the mind of someone who went to see this movie in um, no, nor 1992, but not assuming that a, a large portion probably hadn't engaged with the, the leather, leather socking tales. Yeah. Um, not in Australia, the, certainly. No, yeah. with the poster and the advertising, you would think that, like, this is who Daniel Day Lewis is. Like, he's raised by the, the Mohicans. <laughs> he is the last Mohican. He is sort of like this symbol of continuity between, you know, pre colonial America and post colonial America. He is like the bridge, kind of like the. Um, Tom Cruise is the last samurai or whatever. Yes. Um, but he's not like, and the entire, at the end of it, it's him stepping back um, and, and revealing that it's, it's not him at all. He's really actually kind of like a, uh, just a sort of a, a conduit for the main story, which is, uh, and as you say, the final um, conflict is, is passed uh, away from him. Yeah. It's funny. It's, um, 
Matt Zola-Zeitz, um, uh, the, the wonderful critic for Vulture and editor-at-large at RogerEber.com, he says he's got a theory that whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie is about. And I don't know whether I prescribe to that view necessarily in every movie. Sure. Um, but but I but in this movie it's it's a great way to reframe the entire film. It certainly changed my viewings multiple times as you've kind of gotten older and you've been able to appreciate it more. Like I don't know about you, JR, but like I consumed this on Australian TV and VHS and things like that, and it was a big swashbuckling epic. It was one of those ones that, like, hey, just don't look here where the guy's heart gets cut out, or if you watch it on Australian TV, it is cut out of the version that you watch, like, for many years until later on you see it, and you're like, oh, my God, this movie's, <laughs> like, really violent. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, I watched it a lot um, uh, as a young as a younger man, and, like, it was just one of the big popular movies. Um, but, yeah, having having him pivot away, and that's, that's who it's about. It's like, wow, this movie is completely reframed this is the guy you know this the, the great american hero is you know he's yeah he's he, he's some he's some connection but not it's not him he's not passing down they're not pretending like the native americans in in, in fenimore cooper's actual work when you even just read about it it's like it's not pretending the native americans are these noble savages who are handing over this you know no take it we've We've kept it. It's wilderness, you know. You guys make it a civilization or anything like that. It's it's very it's devastating. It's sad. They're all standing there. They're all changed. They've all lost something. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's when you look at those sort of the original books because like before when these were written, when Fenimore wrote them, there was no corpus of American literature to sort of draw upon and, yes. and sit together. He, he was kind of forging it. Um, and you, <laughs> as, as you can, you know, and as many first drafts go that it's not particularly great in retrospect but look if we've learned just... anything from episode one uh the phantom menace it's that never stick with just the first draft it's no you, just, could... <laughs> you need give it another give it another look over it's a little bit late for james <laughs> Cooper, but um but you know um his sort of characterization um of the of the native american characters was sort of like the creating the core of the noble savage sort of character in American literature yes. uh, that would sort of later be explored in, in Westerns and things like that. Like this laid down the, the groundwork for what would be a Western before yes. there even was a West to talk about. Um, and I think that this movie sort of engages with that in interesting ways by sort of recentering who it is about and who the, you know, who the camera lens focuses on even who, wh- what story is being told sort of like cinematically um, in a way that was a little bit more blinkered in the novel. So I think Man is very conscious of that in making this movie. Um, and the last 12 minutes is sort of when it really, really comes to a four. Oh, absolutely. Look, I, there's one one other thing I do want to chat to you about, Jared, because of your like your own personal background. There's a great book called The Philosophy of Michael Mann. It's um, uh, edited by uh, Stephen Sanders. Um, and there's a couple of really good books on Mann, but this is a really good one, and particularly the article that talks about Mohicans. It talks about man's obsession to uh, layer in um, different political uh, political structures. So you know you've got yeah. a monarchy, um, you've got an emerging colonial society, and then you've got the Huron politics, like tribal politics, um, yeah. and talking about him sort of layering, you know, really specifically layering in, you know, concepts of justice and servitude and all those things into just the tapestry of what the movie is. It's not really talking about them. Like sometimes 
you know, you're literally seeing the the conflict between colonial and, and monarchistic stuff earlier on in the film when the colonial militia is negotiating their terms of service. Um, yep. and, but, but I, I'm just interested to see if any of that like bites with you now, because I don't, you know, I think man's definitely making a commentary on it. Um, that imperfection is kind of rife in every society as far as what the tribal politics are or, or the local politics or any politics. Um, but he's having a view, um, he, he's having a view toward negotiation and diplomacy. I think in all of the, in all of these forms of different political, um, machines that are happening in this landscape. Yeah, um, and I think what the the film also it, it talks about like political structures and sort of the conflict of political structures um, on sort of like a, a, a three layers in the sense of like you've got the monarchical uh, structure from from Britain and also France, yes. um, leading into like the the sort of colonial and emerging uh, American identity in the middle, and then below that obviously the um, the Native Americans. Uh, who have obviously a complex relationship insofar as they are both colonized people, but also um, called into service for uh, the great powers who are, who are battling. Um, and, obviously. And, and micro-nations would we call it? Like essentially that? Like of peoples in places because they're all functioning, you know, yeah. somewhat together. They're kind of being lumbered together because then they, uh, you know, same with the English. They're like, oh, he's a, he's a mohawk. And they're like, no, he's not a mohawk. It's just one throwaway line in the whole movie. It's like, no, he's not a mohawk. He's Huron. Like, yeah. you, but for the audience too, we're like Duncan. We're the idiots. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, yeah, we've got course. no idea. We've got no uh, clue what yeah. delineates a mohawk versus a Huron other than, oh, okay, the guys standing with Magua must be the bad guys. Therefore, they're Huron. Like, you, yeah, you can't just see it aesthetically. And there's that lack of clarity which sort of only gets expressed to us in terms that we understand, which are like, yes. okay, it's England versus France, and one of them is in service of France, and one of them is in service of England, or like, you know, and maybe there's some lack of clarity there, but it, they're all being sort of subjugated um, in service of like these European wars. Yes. Um, but the, the other side of it is kind of... Um, what uh, and and again, I think Man is incredibly conscious of it. Is uh, the original novels were in that sort of 18th century romantic period yes. when people like Fenimore Cooper and other writers, uh, certainly in Europe, but you know, in, burgeoning into um, the New World, was the idea that sort of these political structures of Europe and these um, these old sort of like ancien regime and things like that were um, sort of a perverse and corrupted way of how mankind was supposed to be yes um so there's the noble savage sort of aspect of it which is like you know these people um these native americans who you know they may not be as advanced as us and they may be uh, a sort of a lesser people but they they live a sort of a true life um in a in a landscape that sort of they are um they uh, that, that accepts them in a way that <laughs> europeans are no longer used to yes um and it's that that kind of slowly comes through in uh, the movie because at the beginning it's all very you're kind of thrown into that historical epic mode where it's uh, lots of people walking around settlements like they're in Albany and then um, we go through and we see like we see forts and we see all these sort of like uh, proper these European militaries all decked out and then slowly that sort of falls away. Yeah. Until by the end of it, it's all gone, and it's just the landscape, and it's just people. Um, so there's that kind of feeling of like political structures and um, uh, so artificial structures sort of melting away 
to to what uh, man should be, which is just man and nature. Um, and that's sort of what that 18th century um, romanticism was all about, right? Big capital about. R romantic. It's strip it all away. We've yeah, ruined it. it. We've ruined yeah. it. We've... We've ruined everything. It's just it's just man and nature, and sort of <laughs> man is defined by nature and not the other way around. Um, and that, yeah, so you, you feel you feel all that sort of stuff sort of fall away, and then it just becomes about the people and the, and the landscape they in, they inhabit. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of like where I see sort of the politics of it, sort of this deconstruction. Well, look, it's. Um... I didn't mean to sort of get to a moment where we could end on such a serious and sort of contemplative <laughs> note, but I've had an absolute blast talking to you, JR. JR Hennessy, everyone at um, JR Hennessy on Twitter, um, as I said, editor at Pedestrian and a writer, a man about town, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been a real treat to talk to you and uh, and to read your Twitter is such a joy. So if people want to go there and uh, find and curate um, your, your particular brand of silliness, um, please do. I, I would highly recommend it. I have a good time uh, uh, checking it out myself. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. Thank you so it. much for having me. It's been great.